Imagine how much more successful your business could be if you could optimize the full potential of each and every one of your employees. In this episode of the podcast, Gail Doby talks with returning guest, entrepreneur, and author Mike Michalowicz about creating high-performance teams. If you want to know how to recruit and retain top talent, listen to the full episode and consider buying Mike's new book, All In, How Great Leaders Build Unstoppable Teams. Well, Mike, it is so good to see you. It's been a few years. It has been a few years. It's great to see you too, my friend. Oh, well, I'm so excited to talk about your new book, All In. And I read that over the holiday or my sabbatical, and uh, you'll be happy to know that I was paying attention to you and your other books. (laughs) Four four weeks, that was my third year of taking six weeks off. So Good, good. Yeah, so it's pretty awesome. But All In, I think um, it is probably by far your best book. And I think it had the most uh, useful and very quickly, these can be applied to a business and make a significant difference. So I'm really excited about sharing this with our podcast audience. And uh, let's just dive right in. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So let's start off and talk to us a little bit about what FASO is and why that's so important to building a fully autonomous and seamless organization. That's a mouthful. (laughs) Yeah, it is a mouthful. And yeah, Yeah. FASO, I I call it FASO, kind of Uh rhymes with lasso. It's it's ultimately the model that became apparent. I almost want to say that I created, but I really didn't create it. It was through observation and study Mm -hmm. and research of businesses of all size. I I studied the University of Chicago and their medical department, how they operated uh, all the way down to micro businesses, a a smokehouse in Texas, a barbecue smokehouse, and found that these businesses, when they were successful, they were deploying these four components, uh, FASO, and they, they help in the recruiting of great talent, of the retention of great talent, and the raising the bar of the entire organization for everybody. And it's always facilitated by the leader. So here's what it is in short, F stands for fit. And what great organizations do is they identify the needs of the organization first, and they do it at a task level as opposed to a title level. Most companies say, you know, we need a CFO or we need so-and-so. The question is, what does the CFO need to do for the organization? And what are the important components? When you break it down to the task level, you can match talent to task as opposed to talent to title. When you match talent to task, you automatically bring in people that are such a better fit for the organization and the organization's a better fit, honestly, for them. A stands for ability. And uh, we've all been told to recruit, you know, based upon people's experience. That's an indicator of their future. Some organizations, uh, and I'm happy to report, look at things like innate abilities um, through Myers-Briggs or Enneagram. But there's a bigger component that no one looks at, which is the most important component when it comes to consideration of people, and it's their potential ability. What can this person do in the future, given the right environment? And so I discovered techniques that these companies were doing through these concepts called workshops that allowed people to expose themselves to what may be a good fit for them so they can express their potential. And companies that do that bring on the greatest folks. Uh, Then the S stands for safety. We need to have a safe work environment. And uh, there's psychological safety, there's relational safety, but there's also physical safety. And I went deeply into this and even physical safety in our modern environment is something that many leaders aren't thinking about, but my gosh, there's an opportunity to fix that. In fact, our own company, um, when because I deploy everything that we teach, 
when we're deploying this, we found out we had a physical safety issue and it blew my mind away, Um, but we resolved it and it elevated the company. Then O stands for ownership and ownership is where there's that saying, you know, I wish my colleagues or my employees would act like owners. There's a way to get there. And what you do is you deploy what's called psychological ownership as opposed to legal ownership. Legal ownership is where I actually have legal possession of something. Psychological ownership is where I feel I have something. And it's that feeling that's the most important thing. So you as a leader can deploy psychological ownership with your colleagues and they'll perform higher, they'll have greater appreciation for the organization. It's a win all around. Well, I completely agree with this whole philosophy and I will take that back to my own company. I think it's really important to have all of these features as part of our hiring process and and also managing our team. Yeah. So what do you mean by teams are temporary and positions are permanent? Yeah. So... There used to be permanent teams. My father had one job from when he graduated college till the end of his professional career. And that was the norm. That expectation is gone. And I don't think anyone expects anyone to be hired and stay with you for the life of the company anymore. So we used to build around the people saying, okay, this person's going to progress over the years and we'll we'll see them to the end. What we have to see is our organization is... Um, is a, is a, is a uh, assembly of needs that we have all these different needs that the corporation has, and that can morph over time. We have to define that. The traditional model had us doing a pyramid structure, uh, is in fact called the pyramid chart, where you have you know president in the top box and a big line down, and you have the C-suite and a line down. It's also called a command and control environment where the commands go down and then the feedback comes up. And uh, it's a very inefficient communication model. The model that I found works most effectively is more like a web-like structure, where when we define the needs of the organization and we match people's talents to those tasks, that it becomes this more of a morphic organization. Let's explain, for example, one of my companies, uh, I used to do computer crime investigation. Uh, It was a business I had that I was very fortunate to be able to sell to a, a Fortune 500. When we were building that organization, I hired a receptionist. Uh, her name was Jody, and um, she had in the receptionist role the responsibility to greet walk-ins. We actually used to have a lot of walk-ins back in the day. Every day, someone was visiting the office, uh, answer the phones. But it didn't happen all the time. So there was data entry, and there was other components, light accounting. And when we looked at her work within that title of receptionist, she was good at some of it, but definitely not good at all of it. The data components, the accounting was not her talent. And so the consideration was, is she a fit for the organization? We should get rid of her. Well, at the same time, we were looking at another role. We had a sales uh, role and the, the guy doing that was Rob. And Rob was a closer. He was very good at getting the deal. He was not a farmer, meaning he didn't maintain relationships. In fact, was pretty ineffective at that. Um, he was great at closing, we found, because he was a data guy. He would crunch the numbers and be able to determine when a new prospect was on the horizon and could go after them. He really managed the CRM well. Well, once we realized this, we said, oh my gosh, Jody is our farmer. She builds such good relationships and such good rapport. She should be filling that part of our sales needs. And Rob, who is in our sales, could really be helping what we thought was a reception role, which was this uh, data entry and data maintenance. That's his job. And so we started to morph. Uh, Instead of keeping people in these title silos, we started to let them exploit their strengths and abilities. Both of them performed a much higher level. Both of them contributed to the company at a much better level. Both of them were far more satisfied because they were doing more of what gave them joy and what they are effective at. 
it started becoming like a web-like structure. The titles started to fade away in significance and the roles became prominent. And that's what we need to do in our organizations is to build like this web-like structure. It starts off by breaking down, not the titles for your organization, but all the tasks within your entirety of your organization. And then doing this mis- or mix and match to the people that have the most talent for each task. And you'll find a stronger organization that way. Who should be doing the collection of all those tasks so that you can share those among the team? Yeah. So what you do is, is to start off with one person, maybe start off with yourself if you're the leader and say, what are all the things I do? And write them all down. And then you can do it for another role, whatever it may be, and write them all down. But just do it with one or two positions with your organization. And what you'll see is that in many cases, um, we've siloed a person based upon the title they're filling to do certain things that they're not necessarily talented at. We'll also see people leaning into what they're talented at, even though it kind of is not in their domain. That's when they start wearing multiple hats and kind of pull it into their category. Well, that natural tendency is something we actually want to facilitate in a much more structured format where we're actually documenting and codifying what they do. Here's the interesting thing. When you do this web-like structure, you know, someone may move on. Um, Rob or Jody may decide, hey, I have another opportunity elsewhere or, or a transition in life or whatever. When that person leaves, the mistake that many leaders do is say, I need another Jody. I need someone that's verbatim. But there's only one Jody. There's only one Gail. There's only one Mike in this world. To find those clones are very difficult. So what by what happens by sorting, uh, sorting out by task, we can fractionalize a person. We can say, okay, Jody was filling all these different tasks, but who are the other individuals? Maybe a mix of people that could just take their uh, certain tasks off there. So rarely do we do a one-for-one replacement. It may be people filling uh, other gaps in, and and maybe you hire part-timers or something like that, but it builds a much more flexible structure in in what we have, uh, as opposed to always having one title associated with one person. I love that. Um, We've been operating that way for so long. I I didn't even realize that that was that much different (laughs) than what other people were doing. And uh, we're still kind of moving people around trying to find that right spot for them because we know that they've got that potential. It's so, funny. I, I, I started the book off by, uh, by sharing a call I got from a large Fortune 500 company that said, how do small businesses pull this off? So what you're sharing, Gail, is, is more common in small business. We need that flexibility. So it becomes natural. Yeah. It's as a company grows that we could become more of these silos. And that's where we need to resolve that. Well, and as we've grown, we've just found that there are some people that have some natural talents, like you said. And and so what I've observed just with our people is they kind of raise their hand and say, hey, I'm willing to try this. Are you yeah. open to that? And I'll, yeah, sure. So um, I think this is great. I'm so glad you're sharing this. So what is the difference between qualities and qualifications for a task? Yeah. So qualifications is experientially based uh, analysis and qualities are more innate. Um, and there's one type of quality that is the biggest opportunity and many businesses miss it. So let me explain in a little more detail. The experiential uh, qualifications are like a resume. And what the belief is, is a person's past is indicative of their future. And we all know that's not true. Um, you, you've gotten resumes of what people have done in the past or where they list off, and it doesn't show their capability within our organization at all. So that experiential component, while has relevance, it's not the most important by any stretch of imagination. The next component is our innate abilities. Now, this is where we start getting into the 
uh, qualities. And there's tools like Enneagram and Myers-Briggs and StrengthsFinder. There's countless ones out there that show the makeup of a person. And that's very important. I wish more companies would use that in their consideration process. But there's the third component that I want to focus on that is the most important that's ignored by almost everyone. And it is the most important. And what it is, is potential ability. It's the ultimate quality. What could I do in the future given the right environment? And that's what we need to look for is potential. Question, of course, is how do you identify potential? You do it through a technique called workshops. And uh, this is something that there's a near trillion dollar industry that focuses on, in on this, but it's not the commercial business industry. It is commercial sports, professional sports, and also amateur sports. They do workshops or camps. So I had a personal experience with this. I played lacrosse in high school. I went to a camp called Hobart in the Northeast. That's one of the better schools in, in, uh, in lacrosse. And I was there with 300 or 400 other athletes. And what they did is they were training all of us on certain skills, but certain athletes were tapped on the shoulder and said, hey, there's another field over here. You're demonstrating real potential. We like to show you more skills and more techniques. I never got my shoulder tapped, but certain students did. And some of those went on to play at Hobart, the best of the best. What's interesting about these workshops or these camps is everyone is improving in the process and the people facilitating are able to cherry pick who are the people that have the most potential, the most desire, the most thirst. We should consider them. We as business owners can do this. Run a workshop. Are you looking to hire a bookkeeper, for example, in-house? Run a bookkeeping workshop. And if you don't know bookkeeping, that's okay. You can bring an expert in, hire them to teach it. But the people who show up are showing interest in bookkeeping. You know, learn how to be a bookkeeper. So they're showing curiosity. A certain group of those will have the most desire and thirst. They'll be asking lots of questions. They'll, they'll be uh, pushing the envelope, asking uh, to, to learn more. Those are the people that you may want to consider uh, to employ. The last thing I want to share is uh, this isn't just theory. This happens in the real world. Home Depot uses this technique all the time. The next time you see Home Depot is doing one of those workshops where you can build a birdhouse, you know, bring a child or whatever, what they're doing is it's a recruiting platform. Yeah, they're going to ingratiate you with the store because you're building birdhouses and have a good experience. But they will also observe who are the people that are most participative, who has the most desire to learn about this, who's the most curious, who helps others. They tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, you ever consider working at Home Depot? We'd love to have someone like you on board here. So this can be an extraordinary recruiting platform for us. I love that idea. So how often do companies usually do this? Well, unfortunately, not too much. And that's what I'm trying to deploy more and more. Uh, one of the studies I did was with the University of Chicago, their medical department. And oh, guys, this blew me away. They had done traditional recruiting. This was back in the mid-90s uh, up to this point. And they were looking to fill in this one case, uh, people for their administrative role of checking patients in the emergency room. The, uh, the head of recruiting was following a process of just doing standard interviews and so forth and felt that she innately had this ability to identify the best candidates. The university challenged itself uh, with the, in conjunction with the union to go through a workshop. And what they did is they took 50 candidates that were being considered and got interviewed to also go through a workshop, actually experiencing what it's like to do the administrative stuff, check in and so forth. What was fascinating was one of the uh, workstations, if you will, within this workshop was the actual check-in where someone would give you their license and you had to key code it in. 
But the person that was overseeing this and, and acting as the patient uh, emulated having cerebral palsy. And uh, her roommate actually had cerebral palsy. So she knew that fine motor skills was difficult and so forth. Taking out your license from your purse could have been, you know, a one minute to get that done. So they do this. And some of the applicants going through this process were very hospitable saying, hey, take your time. Or others said, may I assist you in getting you checked in? Um, but one of the candidates just said, give me that darn license and ripped it out of her hand. Well, obviously that person was the worst candidate and was not considered for the job. But here's what was fascinating. That was the exact same person in the interview process who was the number one interviewee. They were confident. They were assertive. They could interview well, but they demonstrated they did not have the innate abilities, the potential to work in the organization. The University of Chicago hired off of the workshop program, and they found, I can't remember if it was 10 or 15 people they hired. It was their best candidates they've ever had in the history of that organization because they stayed the longest and they were the top performers. What's also interesting is the hero of the story is not the union or the folks that, that ran this workshop. It was a recruiting director who was doing the interviews because she said, maybe I'm wrong here. Maybe I don't have, she was confident she had this innate ability to pick out the best, but she said, maybe I don't. And I think that defines great leaders, people who are willing to challenge even themselves and their own beliefs in the betterment of their colleagues and their organization. Love that. Well, let's talk a little bit about the actual individuals you find for your team. So how do you define A, B, and C players? Yeah, so it, it was interesting. I was um, I met with Kip Tyndall. He's the co-founder of the Container Store. And uh, they. if you've ever been to a Container Store, it, it's shockingly, they sell containers, but they sell them really well. Uh, and they compete against the Walmart of the world, but they have half the, the number of staff and the staff is so knowledgeable and so helpful. You go in with your problem, your organization problem, they will fix it. You go to Walmart with an organizational problem, good luck even finding someone that works there. It's a whole different experience. So I sat down with Kip and I said, how do you find all these A players? And what he shared was a few things. First, he shared that A players are people that are put in an environment where they can thrive. And what I concluded is that, in fact, every human being on this planet is an A player. Just many of us are an A player in waiting. Now, I am not suggesting your company, Gail, or mine, or any company has the opportunity for everyone on this planet. But everyone on this planet does have an opportunity if they find the right match. So our job as a leader is, say, do we have something that can service people so they can express their potential and become a, a top performer? Or if not, can we direct them elsewhere? So that's the nature of it. Kip also shared, so in, so Kip said, it's usually hidden away. So it's not like someone worked at a prior container store or, or something equivalent and they're going to come on, they're going to be great. He said, where can they express their truest, deepest selves here? So he said, some people were, that they hired were theater uh, performers, thespians, who uh, he said, listen, you can work here and you can play your character and lean into that uh, at the container store. Other people were retirees who wanted to socialize more. And he said, oh, this is a great platform for you to socialize and reconnect with our community. So he found ways people could express uh, their true desires and interests within the organization. That was key. And people naturally became an A player. The other thing he shared, the last point I want to make that was significant to me, was that he paid people more than Walmart. And when that kind of surprised me, I said, well, you know, Walmart back in the day was paying, say, $10 an hour. And he was paying 15. This is 50% more. I said, how, how can you afford it? 
And he kind of chuckled and said, I don't know how Walmart affords it. And I'm like, I was totally confused. He says, listen, one A player, someone that's expressing themselves that they, they see them, their identity as part of your organization and your organization part of their identity. He goes, they can perform at the level of three B players. Someone who's doing this work because they just need the money. It's the job. And he goes, one B player is equivalent to three C players. Those are cancerous in organization. These are people who resent the fact they have to have a job, so therefore they resent you. So one A equals three B, one B equals three B, which means one A equals nine Cs. And he goes, Walmart is hiring and developing Bs and Cs. So he goes, if I hire one A player for $15 an hour and they hire B players and they're paying them $10 an hour, they need three folks to cover what one of my people is doing. So three times 10 is $30 an hour they're paying when I'm only paying 15. Because I have the deal of the century. I don't know how they're surviving. And that was my wake up call is, is if we develop an environment where people can express their true potential to their fullest, to express it through an organization where they see themselves, their identity as part of our organization, then I can pay those folks a little bit more uh, for them to be compensated appropriately and to stick around and they will outperform everyone else. I'm going to run a lean organization. Thank you for that. Because honestly, it's hard to explain this to people in a way that they understand it. And you just did it so beautifully. Oh, thank you. I think that for everybody that's listening out there, that if you have people on your team, interior designers, and you're hiring juniors, and it's great, but if they are those few players, it's taking a ton of your time as a manager to manage those people. So the cost yeah. is not just the, the actual salary, it's the cost to the ownership or to the people leading the company. Yeah, they, they got to know in part why they are there in the first place, the, the, the C players. And what was my most interesting finding in the research I did is that C players can become A players. It's not that we're hardwired. I am a C player in the wrong environment. And uh, I've had jobs where I hated the job and my performance sucked and I got fired. And I've had jobs where it was part of my identity and I'm a top performer. So it's not the person, it's the match, the fit between the person and the expectations and requirements for them. <clears throat> so the question, of course, is how, how do you take someone that's not performing well and, and make them an A player? It can and does happen. There's two components. One is what's called vision alignment. And I had the biggest wake up call around this personally. I had a business doing computer forensics, computer crime investigation. And one day I spent a full day in my office trying to figure out how we could achieve the next threshold, which was $10 million in revenue. Up to that point, I never had a company of that size. And I figured it out. I was so excited. I came out of the office. I called in, I had 30 employees at the time, called everyone in and said, we are going to do $10 million this year. It's a great fanfare. You know, I had I the tiger playing in the background. No one actually was excited. Uh, no one. People was like, uh, okay, and returned to their desks. My assistant, Patty, came up to me and said, Mike, we do $10 million in revenue. You're going to get the bigger house. You get the new car, but why should we care? This is your vision, your dream. And it hit me like a ton of bricks, Gail, that the vision of an organization is really the dream of the owner. Or if there's a, a, a leadership team, it's the collective dream of the, the leadership team. But it's not true. It's not true to the desire of everyone else. But when I talk to my individual colleagues, someone you know wanted to learn how to play guitar for the first time. Someone wanted to spend more time with their family and be more present. They had someone ill in their family. Our job as great leaders is a find out what is important to our team. So those those folks, those interior designers, as staff you brought on board, that's not performing well. 
find out what's important to them in their lives. Our job then as a leader is to help them manifest that. Now, our job is not to pay for that house they're looking to buy or, or send to lessons, but it's to keep the dream in front of them. So they understand this is a means to achieving that dream. And maybe we can even block and tackle, make introductions and connections and so forth. But when you care for their vision, they will care for yours. It's reciprocity. Now we're walking arm in arm and achieving the vision of the company because you're helping everyone else achieve their own visions. That's one of the biggest components. The, the second part of helping people become A players in an organization is to give what's called psychological ownership. Psychological ownership is where we have the feeling that we own something. Classic example I use is with cars. You can rent a car or you can have a car that you own in your driveway and we treat it differently. That rental car, at least for me, I floor it when the light turns green, I skid in when it turns red because it's a rental car, it ain't mine. But in the case of the car I own, then you know I'll pat on the, the dashboard after I drive uh, two or 300 miles and say, good girl, good ride. The reason I act differently is not because of legal ownership. I don't own the rental car. I actually don't own the car in my driveway. The bank owns it. I'm making my installments, my payments. I don't have legal ownership. I have psychological ownership. Psychological ownership is where we have the personal control over the object, meaning I decide when to drive it. I can park it where I want to park it. I can do with it what I want to do with it. There's certain laws. I can't speed and so forth, but I can control most of it. The second thing is I can personalize it. I can put something on the rear view mirror, put stick, bumper stickers on it or whatever I want. And I have intimate knowledge. I know it uh, inside and out. With our team, if we give people the ability to control what their outcome is, so avoid the micromanagement, just agree to the outcomes, but allow them to navigate the path to get there, giving them control. If we allow them to personalize it, you know, what's the flavor you want to give this job or capacity? and we allow them to gain intimate knowledge, they will inherently start taking ownership. It becomes part of their identity. When you hear them saying, this is my job or my responsibility, as opposed to this is the company's responsibility or the company's job. When they start using the word mine or my, that means they're starting to take on psychological ownership and they'll start elevating to higher levels of performance. So I like that. And you talked about the that work is a reflection of your team members' character and their job is their identity. So talk about that a little bit. I think there's no greater force in how we perform in any element of life than compliance with our identity. If I say I suck at math, I'm not going to go out of my way to study math and practice math. I will actually prove I suck at math by avoiding math. And if I say I'm, you know, I'm a great um, husband to my wife, well, I will then demonstrate uh, actions that are consistent with that because that's my identity. So the identity is basically the rule set of our behavior. It's a thermometer. So when we associate our job as part of our identity, that's what A players will naturally do, but we as leaders can facilitate that. We'll start saying, I am as good as I perform and I think I am great and therefore I'm going to perform greatly. So it's very important to set that thermometer, that identity. Um, we do it through psychological ownership by giving people control and authority. I do want to give one word of caution or warning here is we can give too much control and authority. And so there's a little bit of this Goldilocks, you know, it's got to be just right temperature setting. If someone has total control and authority over something, uh, a job or responsibility, they have all the knowledge and exclusively the knowledge around it, they can start building a fiefdom. And a fiefdom is dangerous in that now they blockade other people from from penetrating that. And uh, they can assert some kind of authority 
maybe reverse golden handcuffs and say, if you don't pay me more, if you don't do this for me, I'm taking this knowledge with me or I'm going to hurt this role and I'm going to abandon it and I'll hurt the company. So we want to move to the highest level of identity, which is called collective psychological ownership. This is when it's our company, it's our organization. When you hear an employee say, oh, your company's doing well, they're not associated with it. When they say our company is doing well, they have this collective ownership. One way to deploy this technically is by matching title to tasks, we can start building forms of redundancy where people are doing or associating multiple people with one task so that if a person is unavailable, the other person can cover it. And now this isn't just my responsibility, it's our, maybe a small set of people taking care of something becomes collective, it reduces fiefdom, it improves the identity. Um, that's the best way to do it. Excellent. Well, you talked also about five phases of the hiring process and what are those phases? Well, I'll do, yeah, so I call the five-star fit. There, there's different elements we're looking for. So the first thing is we wanna look for potential. Um, we can do it through workshops. Who are the people that raise their hand and are curious? It's not looking for people of the experience, it's looking for people of potential. The second thing is we look for the key intangibles. I call them the three L's. They're limber, they're listeners, and uh, they like what they're doing. So we want people that have that flexibility and that desire. The next thing is give people that workshop experience where people go through tests and try things out. So don't just say, well, based on all these qualifications and what we know of your history, we're going to bring you on board. Let them have an experience doing it. So I like to have a one or two day workshop. Then have an extended trial period, sometimes up to 90 days, where go through the experience. Um, you're going to be paid for it, of course. But at the end of 90 days, the employment ends and you can make a decision that you still want to work with us. And we can make a decision that we want to hire you. Uh, it's, it's this opportunity for you to evaluate us. And it actually gives the employee some flexibility to learn about the culture in the organization. And the last thing is learn about their vision. We already talked about this. Is the person is there to serve not just the company, they are there even more to serve themselves. What are their dreams and visions for themselves? As a great leader, define that, document it, discuss it regularly, and make sure that their job in some capacity is always helping them march toward that vision. If you are helping them achieve what their life's vision is in some ways, they're gonna help you achieve your corporate vision. Well, that is just so good. And you've given so many great tidbits today. I really appreciate that. And would you like to share anything else that um, maybe something I didn't ask you? And then at the very end, share with us where they can find your book. You got it. Yeah. So uh, something I didn't share um, is leaders um, in today's environment uh, are needed more than ever. It's because of the COVID pandemic. And there was before the expectation of micromanagement to some degree, meaning you could observe people because they were at your office. Now it's outcome management. You can't manage the tasks anymore. You can't see the people you're working with. So it's outcome management. So great leaders help their colleagues or collaborate their colleagues to determine the outcomes they're achieving, not all the individual tasks that get them to the outcome. And if you want to check out the book, just got released. You can go to allinbymike.com and get details. Of course, it's on Amazon. I got right here. Uh, it's called All In. And uh, it's how great leaders build unstoppable teams. I, I really do think it's the best work of my life. 
It is. It is absolutely. I enjoyed it so much. And I was, I actually did the exercises too. Thank you. (laughs) There was a lot of work in there. What I love is you've given very specific things that people can do and implement immediately. So thank you, Mike, as always, it's great seeing you and thank you for your input and thank you for giving back to all the entrepreneurs. We need this. It's been a joy. Thanks, Gail. Thanks, Mike. Thanks to Mike for once again coming on the podcast and talking about his brand new book. His insights into hiring and keeping great talent are invaluable, and hopefully this gave you some inspiration and ideas on how to make the most of your team right now and in the future. If you enjoyed this episode, you can learn more about Pearl Collective at thepearlcollective.com, and you can find us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook.